As we have discovered, we have placed ourselves right in the path of God's blessing by studying this book together. So let's multiply our opportunity for blessing. Last time we were together, we studied six trumpet judgments. It was a second series of judgments on the earth that are directly related to ceremony in heaven, the turning over of the title deed uh, to the earth, the, the ownership of the earth back to its rightful owner. Of course, let me invite you to turn to, uh, as we're uh, thinking about what we've looked at, Revelation chapter 9, where you do that. And we'll begin reading here in just a minute, just as we take a little bit of a review. That second series of judgments on the earth, directly related to the ceremony in heaven. Remember, the turning over of the ownership of the earth is very important, as it belongs to not Satan temporarily, but to the Lord uh, for all eternity and the saints who inherit it. And so uh, this is the process of that happening. There is a marvelous ceremony pageantry occurring in heaven, and then the earth is going to be turned over. But during that pageantry, things are happening. Uh, uh, seals are broken and trumpets are, are blown. But each time that happens in the pageantry, something happens on the earth. And so the Lord has seen fit through an angel as he tutors John to document that for us so we can know in advance what will be occurring. Now, we saw in Revelation 8-7, judgment on plant life. We saw judgment on the seas in Revelation 8-8. We saw judgment on flowing water in Revelation 8.10. We saw judgment on the heavens in Revelation 8.12. We saw judgment of locusts from the pit in Revelation 9.1, which we actually saw are going to be demons flooding the earth to inflict suffering on non-believers. And we saw they're only allowed to attack non-believers. Believers are protected from those demons. And then no sooner than five months later, perhaps a little longer, because those who are stung by the demons suffer for five months and are not able to die, we have that little timestamp there. Then the judgment of the demon Calvary, and that's Revelation 9.13. Here comes this host released by four fallen angels. These are demons as well. Their number is 200 million, and they kill a third of the world. And they do that by fire, and we saw by smoke and by sulfur, which comes out of their mouth. And believers are protected from them as well. And then we saw in Revelation 9.20, look there with me. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Verse 21, they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries, as pharmakeia, the word for drug use, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. And so we see men didn't repent, they just cursed God. Some men won't repent of their sin in an age of grace when God is long-suffering. They don't know if God exists. They don't want to give up their life right now, maybe later. They want to see some kind of sign before they'll believe. Uh, they've seen too many hypocrites in the church or whatever. So men don't repent in an age of grace. And some uh, men won't repent of their sin when God's bringing judgment. And so it'll, instead of repenting, it'll be, what do, I, what do I do to deserve this? Why is God so capricious, so vindictive? This is certainly not the God of love I've heard about. I don't deserve had to be treated like this, I'm really a good person, whatever. See, Now, those are, it's always a matter of rebellious heart, isn't it? It's always a matter of wanting to do what you want to do and not what the Lord requires of you. Now, these are pretty formidable trumpets, are they not? And you've noticed that the church is not around all this time. It's one of those little clues that helps us know that this time in history is not for the church. The church isn't mentioned. So as you work your way through, no matter what people may tell you, understand that as you work your way through this time, you're not seeing the church mentioned. That's because they're not there. The church has been what, beloved? Raptured. Chapter 10 is another one of those little respites for John, a break, if you will. And it's marvelous because the Lord puts a lot on John, of course, and he wants us to know these things. But John has to be 
uh, the funnel through which they come. And so John gets another break. And there's a break between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, just like we had a break between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. So he gives John another little vision of the good part. Look with me at Revelation 10, 1. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. So another, Alos, another of the same kind, so it's not Jesus coming down, but a mighty angel. He's mighty, he's beautiful, clothed with a cloud, so he's wrapped in a cloud. Nepheli is the word, the same type of word of cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration, so Matthew 17, 5, of the cloud. Uh, the cloud with covered Israel and the Red Sea, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. That's the same word. And a rainbow was on his head. Uh, what does a rainbow represent? Well, it's never going to destroy the world by flood. It also represents God's faithfulness to all of his promises. His face was like the sun. It's bright. It's too bright to look at. So he's around God all the time, like Moses' face, but brighter still. And his feet like uh, appear to be burning. Now, Revelation 10, 2, he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and on his left on the land. Uh, this is the seven-sealed scroll that was opened earlier, same word for both. And uh, the stance really sets what he's going to say in context. Uh, who's been in charge of the sea and the land since the fall? Satan. But look how the angel is standing now. He's standing, now I'm in charge, he says. Uh, I'm standing over these things in God's uh, stead. But God has sent me here to stand here. And so he says, verse, in verse 3 he says, And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars, and when the, he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Verse 4, When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven, this is probably Jesus' voice, the one we identified in chapter 1, saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, do not write them. So, the angel has a scroll. He takes a position of, of a conqueror. It symbolizes conquering, authority. He cries out to the Lord for his next step. The Lord answers back. Uh, the fullness of a thunderous response from the Lord, each one is a separate response. John is able somehow to understand those responses and would have relayed them to us, but the Lord clearly tells John not to write them down. Don't let them know about this. Don't tell them. It's too fantastic, perhaps. The judgment on sinners is too much, too terrifying, uh, too horrible. Seal up what the seven thunders said. Don't tell them. Now look at verse 5, chapter 10. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven. Verse 6, And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there, be, there will be delay no longer. Verse 7, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, this is chapter 11, verse 15, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. So we know coming up in the next chapter, the mystery of God is finished. With the revealing of what God has to reveal. The angel is lifting up his hands to swear an oath. This is no flippant oath, which prohibited by Jesus in Matthew 5.33. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is an oath guaranteed by whom? That's guaranteed by the Lord himself. We've seen that same imagery in Daniel 12, and we'll look at it again in depth when we study Daniel after this one. After this study, it sheds more light on all of these things. But look there just quickly. Turn to Daniel 12, verse 6. A marvelous section. Verse 6, it says, And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? 
Verse 7, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be over time, times, and half a time. As soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Verse 8, as for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? God is the one who guarantees this oath, and it's important because, number one, it guarantees all things will come to completion. Number two, there won't be any more delay. And when the seventh angel sounds in chapter 11, verse 15, the complete mystery uh, will be revealed, which he began revealing to his servants, the prophets. Now, in Daniel, we see it's for a time, time, and half a time. And so we know, uh, we continue to see that over and over again, uh, three and a half years, that conclusion of all that's going to happen. And so uh, Amos chapter 3, verse 7, if a trumpet blown in a city, will not, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, but who can but prophesy? And so we see the Lord guaranteeing, we see the Lord speaking, we see him speaking through angels, we see him speaking through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, when it happens, it's clear who's doing it. Revelation 10, 8, then we see this part. It says, then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And so I went, verse 9, to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And John saw in that vision the scroll, which, as we read, represents God's taking back the earth, and he puts it in his mouth. And God told him to take it and put it in his mouth and eat it up and swallow it. And he said that he did it. Now, verse 10, it says, I took a little book, the little book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now what does John mean when he says he ate the book and it was sweet and bitter? Well, we have that same imagery again in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 5, and these are really marvelous words. And I'll just read them to you and then we'll comment on them briefly. I think that you'll pick up the meaning as we read. In Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 5, as for them, whether they listen or not, now this is the Lord talking to the prophet and telling him that he's going to go and he's going to prophesy to people and they're not going to listen, or maybe some of them will, but most of them won't, but not to worry. He says, as for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Verse 6, and you, son of man, neither fear them nor their words, though thistles and thorns are with you. And you sit on scorpions, neither fear their words, nor be dismayed at their presence. No matter what your circumstance may be, no matter where you may be at the time that I'm using you, don't be dismayed at their presence. Don't be fearful. Don't be reticent to say what I'm, I'm telling you to say. For they are a rebellious house. Verse 7, but you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. Now, what, what kind of point do you think he's trying to get through to Ezekiel? That Israel's a rebellious house. And I, I'm afraid, I think in the modern uh, church world, that uh, in the Western church anyway, that they've become a rebellious house too. Hard-hearted, stiff-necked, not listening to the Lord, not doing what he said. And as we've studied before, many times the church seems to follow in the path of, of apostate Israel. And he says, verse 8, Now you, son of man, listen to what I'm speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. So don't be like them, he says. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Verse 9, and I looked, then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. And when he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back, 
and was written on it, there were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Now skip to chapter 3, verse 10 of Ezekiel. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, take it into your heart all my words which I will speak to you, and listen closely. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and speak to them, and tell them whether they listen or not. Thus saith the Lord God, verse 12, Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard a great rumbling sound behind me, Blessed be the glory of the Lord in his place. So he hears this big noise, and that's what it's saying. Verse 13, And I heard the sound of the wings of the living beings touching one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, even a great rumbling sound. So these are those four beings that always are around the glory of the Lord or around in the worship of the Lord. Verse 14, So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I was embittered in the rage of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. And so he sees this book, and... Uh, he sees what it says, and it's full of lamentation and, and mourning and woe and all of that. And then Jeremiah 15, 16, it says, Your words were found in me, and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart, for I have been called by your name, the o, o Lord God of hosts. So even though the messages to Ezekiel and Jeremiah were messages of judgment, and here's the, here's the parallel I want to make, even though those were messages of judgment, uh, the scroll is sweet because it's God's word, and God's message is sweet because it's God's word. And although it's a message of judgment, it's still the word of the Lord. It's still true, always true. And so it's sweet because it's the word of the Lord. Psalm 19.10 says it's sweeter than what? Honey in the honeycomb. It's vindicated God's holiness, uh, his righteousness. It vindicated his glory, his faithfulness. It's always the same. Those who give God's message internalize the message first. And that message is sweet, but sometimes it's bitter to give it out. And so that's the idea when he tells John, take that scroll. He wants John to internalize all that he's saying. Make sure that you understand this is my word, John. Uh, you don't have to be afraid because it's true and it, it will occur just like I say it will. It'll be sweet because of that, but because it, it, it uh, refers to people and it refers to judgment and it refers to death and it's full, as Ezekiel said, full of uh, lamentation, mourning, and woe, it's also going to be bitter. It's bitter to give out. So when John says in Revelation 10.10, 10, I took the little book out of the hand of the angel and I ate it in my mouth it was sweet as honey and when I had eaten it my stomach was made bitter. He means when he sees the coming of Jesus Christ in his glory, I have a sweet taste because Christ deserves to reign and the earth belongs to him and we are his handiwork and he deserves our praise and he deserves our glory and he's worthy. But I also have this bitter taste because when he comes in glory to reign, beloved, listen, mark this, it's going to mean devastation and eternal damnation of those who refuse to hear him as Lord. And that really is the essence of the taking in and the giving out of the word, even now, beloved. Do you understand? When you give out the gospel, it's sweet, isn't it? And I hope that you're doing that on a regular basis. You win souls as wise. You've been empowered to speak the truth. You've been given knowledge to do it, 1 Corinthians says, as a saint. So think about it, beloved. If you haven't given out the word of the Lord, if you haven't given out the, uh, the gospel this week or in the last month or in the last couple of months. Listen, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Internalize the word. Internalize the gospel. Understand what it says, that it's true. It's always true. It, it affects the hearts of men and brings them to repentance. And when you take that in, that's going to be sweet. But when you give that out and you give the gospel out and it's rejected or it's put on hold or I don't have time for that right now or I don't really believe that, that's bitter, isn't it? Because the bitterness is, is that judgment sets on that person. They're under a curse and remain there when they could be delivered. So that's the essence of it, see? And so it's sweet and it's bitter. The truth of God are pleasant to the taste, 
but many times bitter when they are digested because they speak of judgment on a rebellious world, and that is the joy slash sorrow of knowing the Word of God and giving it out. It's a very real feeling. And before you can have that kind of holy dread, you have to really believe what the Word says. Because if you really believe what the Word says, knowing the fear of the Lord, Paul says, we persuade men. Knowing the dread that's there of what is going to occur, we speak. You've got to really believe what the Word says if you're going to have that holy kind of dread. But then it becomes part of the blessing for those who read, hear, and keep to take heart the words of this prophecy. So you, when you believe the truth and the truth and the unshakable statements of the Lord on the world, then you can say with Paul, knowing the terror of the Lord, we what? We persuade men, 2 Corinthians 5.11. So, now that you've worked through your bitterness and the weighty matters of God's, of God's word addressed, the angel says together with Jesus in Revelation 10.11, and we'll close with this, and they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Once again, context of the words point to a pre-trib rapture. He's supposed to go and warn and prophesy so they can what? Endure the wrath of God anyway? No, of course not. It makes the passage meaningless if it's not a pre-trib rapture. Why would he have to go and, and prophesy again? And why would he have to concern many people and nations and tongues and tell them what's going on? No, so they can be saved, of course. And avoid the wrath of the Lord. Now, next time we get to study two of my favorite characters in all of Scripture, and we get to see the timing of some of the things that have taken place and what still remains, and we'll see you then. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we thank you today uh, for, for uh, the holy dread your word brings to our heart and the sweetness of it, Lord, that we believe what it says and we understand that sweetness, that it is true and it's going to occur. Lord, help us to truly embrace the, tr the uh, reality of these statements. And then the holy dread and bitterness of, of uh, if people reject what will occur to them will be ours, which is so where you'd like to have us. Have your will and way in us, Lord. Make us even more committed to your word than we were before and to the work that you've given us to do. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus.